the Centre Steer Podcast, a podcast by, for and about Land Rover owners. Welcome to the Centre Steer Podcast, podcast number 128 for November of 2023. I'm your host, John Costage. Joining me around the virtual campfire this month is Harold Morgan and Dixon. Welcome back. Good day. Thanks for having me. Harold, do you want to sign in or not? No. <laughs> You All gave right. me a choice. Center Steer is a monthly podcast for Land Rover enthusiasts, hobbyists, and owners around the world. We're owners and uh, enthusiasts ourselves, and we like to thank you for listening and engaging with us. Special thanks to our Patreon and Buy Me a T subscribers for their support. Patreon supporters receive bonus content, including 10 questions, which is our lightning round of questions and answers. And a special shout out to Bob Steele for his buy me a brown water. He commented this past month, I've been remiss these past few months as my Land Rover travels have taken me far afield. I always enjoy the Center Steer podcast while on the road and familiar voices and knowledge shared by John, Harold, Morgan, and Dixon is always a pleasure. And for your wonderful guests in hopes we are all staying properly hydrated, brown water all around. Thank you for being such an important part of our Land Rover enthusiast community. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate the, it. The brown baron rides again. <laughs> nice. This podcast is the first of a two-parter with Nick Dimbleby. Nick is the famed photographer of Land Rovers, and Nick's connection with Land Rover is very unique. His first drive was in a Range Rover. He was a participating photographer in the Camel Trophy, and he's involved in the development and launch of several models. This time, this month, we cover the last century, his early interest in Land Rover through the Camel Trophy, and next time, which will probably be in January, we will talk about his activities in this century, Overland Journeys, product launches, and concept models. So stay tuned for our conversation with Nick. He's a nice guy, real, real easy to talk to. I found it interesting that he's not only well-published, but his very first publication happened when he was too young to legally drive. Nice teaser. Good teaser, Harold. Now it's time for North American Club Events. Dixon, take it away. Well, on the Anarchs event front, now that the Guy Fox rally has passed in early November, the rally schedule for member clubs has become rather thin. In fact, we're solidly moving into the Christmas season where clubs are now having their Christmas gatherings. You probably should consult your club email or Facebook group for those details. For some, these gatherings will be quite soon. For example, if you're in Ottawa, it's this coming Sunday, the 3rd of December. The Carolina Trail Rovers is having something in the mid-month, while Fort Pitts will be in early January. Huzzah, it's you back. Really can't... <laughs> yes. We haven't had one in quite a while. Well, really, you can't go wrong attending one of these events. You know, in fact, many clubs have their annual awards at this time, and some pretty interesting accomplishments and so on can be celebrated at them. In terms of getting your aluminum friend out and off the asphalt, this month's one pager, which has been posted to Facebook and in the OVLR magazine, talks about four events that are actually next year. Starting with the Winter Romp up in Maine in mid-February, it's followed by the Rovers Club Spring Robinsonia Trials, RTV, that's going on in Pennsylvania. Rove has its annual spring event at Wintergreen in Virginia. And OVLR has the Maple Syrup Rally near Ottawa in Quebec. As we get into 2024, we'll have more details on all of these. When's the Maple Run? Maple Syrup is end of March, early April. It all depends on what Mother Nature does. Right. It's and the, how the running of the sap. 
Yes. Mother Nature tells us when it's going to be, not the other way around. It's, that's one I, I kind of like to do sometimes. It is a very pleasant one, small one, but you know, very nice. Where can folks find all this detail in addition to the OVLR newsletter? And that's online too, isn't it? The old issues are online. The current ones are go out to members and such. But when it comes to events, they're all in the Facebook group. If you want to know when some of these events are, not only would they be OVLR be in the OVLR Facebook group, but the Anarch Club website, as well as the Anarch group on Facebook, will also have all these different events on them. For example, the Rose group the website that talks about wintergreen and winterromp.me has got everything on the winter romp. Registration there is open and it's free. And you should register so they know you're coming and what the plan for. Registration this year is going to be a requirement. Bruce needs to have this, the type of knowledge and so on to go and do all the planning. And it's free, so yeah. it takes it 30 seconds to type your name and address in. Yeah, but about 30 hours to get there. <laughs> Depends where you are. It's only seven for me. Yeah, it's like 12 for me, but it's still, it's a good event. Yeah, if you were thinking about going to Maine to check out the Winter Romp, I highly recommend you check it out. It's worth going. It's a neat event. Your only danger is, is getting hooked on it and coming back again and again, as people do. I suspect if you're from the Southern States, it could be a little more cold than you would normally be used to. So take some extra layers and some thick socks. Well, my biggest advice to people coming from the South is that when you arrive up in Maine at the winter romp, make sure you fill up your diesel tank with local diesel because you may find the next morning your fuel from Virginia or whatever has now gelled. That has happened more than once. That's an excellent tip. And L.L. Bean is on the way. So if you forget your socks, you can stop at L.L. Bean on the way and pick up some, some heavy socks. That's very true. They are just off the 95 there. And if you're interested in events outside of North America, the Association of Land Rover Clubs based out of the U.K., you can check them out. We have a link from our Enarc page over to them. You can check events out there. Thanks very much, Dixon. You're welcome. And we're having an Instagram giveaway. So thanks to Knightsbridge Overland, we're giving away a front or rear seat cover set. So this includes any of the stock seat covers sets that are listed on the Knightsbridge Overland website. To enter for a chance to win, starting on December 2nd, like and follow both the Center Steer and Knightsbridge Overland Instagram accounts, and then one lucky winner will be selected for the set of front or rear Land Rover seat covers on December 9th. The giveaway period runs just, just for a week, and you can see our Instagram post for all the details, and that'll go up on December 2nd. Purposely picked December 2nd because it's after the podcast gets gets published and then I can take a few minutes to work up that post for Instagram. Thanks to Knightsbridge Overland for their support of the podcast. And now, time for the news. Actually, looking at all of the news titles, John, that you've gone and put down for us to chat about, there's one thing that I find striking. I remember we discussed earlier this past year all about JLR's rebranding and how successful that would be and all the rest of this stuff. And I'm looking through the news titles and I'm seeing things like Jaguar Land Rover, dot, 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 Jaguar Land Rover, dot, 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 Land Rover Defender, SVX. I think 
that the rebranding campaign, at least with the media, isn't doing as well as maybe they would have hoped because the only time I see JLR is as an abbreviation in the middle of the article to speed reading. I think perhaps the media doesn't really trust that the general public is ready for that change. And maybe they're continuing to use the old names for the recognition factor. And to be fair, we're also looking at these news articles online and for SEO reasons, search engine optimization, it may actually be better for them to have the words Land Rover or Jaguar in there for people to find them. Well, which goes to my statement about the public not being ready. It undermines what JLR is trying to do, that if the public is not ready for it and search engines and so on are still using Land Rover and Jaguar Land Rover and such, not going to create the association to go find that JLR Pittsburgh, JLR, New York dealership, they're going to look for Land Rover, which means you still have to maintain all of this stuff. Let's get into those news stories then. JLR reports record revenues as sales increased. JLR, owned by India's Tata, revealed that it has made revenues of 13.8 billion pounds between April and September, which is up 42% on the previous year. In the latest quarter, revenues hit 6.9 billion pounds while profit before tax rose year on year to 442 million pounds, 442, nice little Oldsmobile reference. It has also reported its fourth consecutive quarter of profit for the first time in six years, after a difficult period in which it wrote down the value of big investments in China and then had to cope with the coronavirus pandemic and a global shortage of chips. The company still has a order backlog of 165,000 cars, but that was a marked reduction from the peak of more than 200,000. It said that demand for its Range Rover, Range Rover Sport and the Defender remained strong, particularly in China. Adrian Mardell, the chief executive, said he expected revenues to hit a new record in the second half of its financial year before an expected drop in demand from April onwards. That's a lot. That's a big turnaround. Oh, I'm amazed at how the yo-yo is up and down yes. their profits and losses. That's also the writing down of those investments they had yeah. and you know, that reimagination strategy or one of them they canceled or retold. Volatility comes because it's such a small company. They have a good year, it's up a bunch. If they have a bad year, it's down a bunch. And that good year led Moody's to upgrade uh, JLR in the Moody's uh, rating index here. They were upgraded from uh, BA3 to B1. I suspect there's somebody who knows what that means. This article from CNBC tells me it's a good thing. Moody said the outlook for all ratings remain positive. So that's a good sign. That is a good sign. And and I'm curious with not just the the upgrading, but also with the nice turn of profit for JLR, whether their cancellation of some of the Jaguar product launches actually helped there. It certainly couldn't have hurt. It can't have. (laughs) Yeah, it can't have hurt. Considering they lose money on every Jag they build, pretty much. Yeah, they're winding that whole thing down. And those launches are expensive. Yeah, those ones, they can't show up dirty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, not, another little teaser. <laughs> little teaser. Well done. JLR China joint venture reportedly lays off 20% of workers. A joint venture between JLR and China's Cherry or Cherry Automotive laid off 15 to 20% of its staff from functions including manufacturing, engineering, and logistics. 
making it the latest global automaker to reduce its workforce amid growing competition in China. Several employees told Chinese media outlet that the company had terminated a large number of contracts early this year and executed cost-saving measures on travel and training, facing quality issues and slowing demand for its gas and diesel-powered off-road vehicles. The British carmaker sold around 68,000 vehicles in China last year, falling from a peak of 146,000 units in 2017. JLR is not the only overseas automaker feeling the heat, as Chinese electric vehicle manufacturer BYD and Li Auto gain momentum at home, and Mitsubishi Motors on October 24th announced an end to production of its joint plant with Chinese partner GAC. So I'm not sure everything's rosy in China for JLR. Having lost, essentially since 2017, reduced down to 50% of the sales, cutting 20% of staff is... Not all that bad, but yeah, it's not heading in the right direction, but also it probably wasn't a sustainable direction. And next, JLR boss says, sorry for crippling parts crisis, which has wiped cars off the road. And that's a British wiped cars off the road. A car dealer magazine exclusively reported last month that as many as 10,000 vehicles were awaiting new parts, half of which were being hoarded up at dealerships across the country. And this is in the UK. Uh, yesterday, we uh, also brought you news of the firm had been accused of using secondhand parts in an attempt to clear huge backlog. Speaking on November 2nd, after the publication of JR's latest results, CEO Adrian Mardell said the firm is really unhappy about the delays. Autocar reports that the worst delays are stemming from the British automaker's new parts logistics hub in Leicestershire. Mardell told reporters, it was a planned transition, but the transition is taking longer than we would have originally have planned. Just to be clear, that's something that nobody wished for, and that's something that, as an organization with our partners we're working with here, we obviously have responsibility for the change. So much for just-in-time parts delivery to reduce costs and so on. Seems that they're trying to cut this to such a fine degree that it's beginning to go and cause them a little bit of trouble. I don't think they have the parts to deliver in time, period. That's the problem with just-in-time. A small disruption brings everything to a grinding halt. Let alone the fact that they're behind in parts, yet they're changing parts mid-model year. It's also part of the just-in-time approach, is it's fine to change a part mid-production cycle as long as it's going to make everything easier and smoother going forward. But as long as the parts are showing up at the factory. It's still just funny to me that they keep saying, oh, it's the new logistics center that's the problem. It's if you don't have them, that it's more than just the logistics. Well, I think yeah. that's the just-in-time Point. part where things probably didn't, they were supposed to maybe arrive at the new place. Maybe they went to the old place. Well, I think <laughs> the just-in-time part was that an excuse for the problem showed up just in time. Yes. Now, there you go, Harold. That might be on the nose on that one. And it has nothing to do with cutting 20% of manufacturing in China. JLR spends millions to stamp out theft epidemic. This is a couple paragraphs here I think it's worth reading. While owners of older Kia and Hyundai models in the U.S. have spent much of the last two years waking up and wondering whether their cars were still where they left them the previous night. Yes, that's a real issue here in the U.S. Even after the dealer fixes them, they still have that wonder. And over in the UK, the Range Rover have been making similar headlines. The situation became so bad that owners in some major cities like London were finding that their cars were effectively uninsurable because they either couldn't afford the crazy premiums or couldn't actually find a company that would insure them. Even JLR 
itself had to drop its own insurance scheme because so many SUVs were being stolen by thieves hacking the keyless entry systems. JLR chief admits earlier this year that tackling the theft problem was a top priority and now says they have invested over 10 million pounds to roll out security updates on vehicles built since 2018. It claims that more than 65,000 vehicles have so far been equipped with free electronic security mods and is urging other eligible owners to take up them up on the offer to have their cars updated. Land Rover and Range Rover models built. I like how they did Land Rover and Range Rovers are Land Rovers. Okay. Land Rover and Range Rover models built since 2022 haven't been targeted by fees in the same, to the same extent because they use the newer ultra wide band technology that prevents relay attacks in which criminals intercept and clone the signals from the key. As a result, JLR claims that only 0.07% of new Range Rovers and Range Rover Sports and 0.3% of new Defenders are being stolen. Let's see. My first comment on that, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the city of Chicago versus Kia in the courts. Chicago is suing Kia over the fact that they're lousy security systems in the car is driving up the yep. the cost of policing, law enforcement, and everything else. So that may have something to do with it. Actually, there's another aspect to this. Frank Elson, who has an interesting blog that he writes on the internet every month, noted in his latest one that he was talking about a friend who was going to pick up a 2023 Range Rover. The quotes he got for insurance were between 6,500 pounds with a tracker and 8,000 pounds without. And this is for a person with no convictions, no points, no claims, low risk. And I was told that one in, one in three of new Range Rovers are getting stolen within the first six months. And as a result, many insurance companies simply aren't offering to cover them at any price. So oh, they better be spending millions to stamp out endemic theft because actually Bruce Fowler the winter Roth fame sent a, a video of another podcast where the, a guy is talking about his brand new Defender, went on a trip, left his Defender at the airport. When he came back, Defender was gone. Mm. Oh, Do they know how it was I'm stolen? Not, no. I don't know if maybe they had video but, or something of the... But I think JLR statistics there with the 0.0%, I think their decimal place might be in the wrong spot. Well, this may specifically have been for the UK. That was unclear in this article. Yeah. It might've been a UK thing. doesn't seem like it's been as big of a noticeable issue in the US as far as the thefts are concerned, because I think Kia and Hyundai have been, <laughs> been making the headlines <laughs> way more. And, and, and if you have a proper, proper vintage Land Rover, a Series 2 or a Series 3 or something, you can leave the keys in those and they won't get stolen in this country. Oh, yeah. Well, that's because they can't find the starter button. And they don't know how to, they don't know how to manage all the sticks coming out of the floor. The shot leave, leave the high, low and neutral. I feel like there's also a, a demographic difference with the U.S. Obviously, there's a number of Range Rovers in the U.K. is probably higher than in the U.S. But also the ones in the U.S. are far more likely to be parked in a private garage on somebody's large piece of property or in some, some kind of other private parking garage in a, a city here in the U.S. It, in the U.K. And, and Europe, it seems to me that a lot more are obviously not necessarily just parked on the street, but that they're in a, in a 
place where they much more easily accessed and removed. And then you can actually quite easily get across borders and into other countries and disappear them. From my understanding up here with the auto thefts in, in Ottawa is that the professionals are behind it. They use kids because the kids, if caught, are under 18, so they'll have their weapon records wiped and so on. And they also get sanctions a lot less. But when they do take a car, they are they get onto the, the highway and they will go as fast as they can to Quebec because apparently, as I've been told, once you're over a certain speed, the provincial police will stop chasing you because it's no longer safe. And once they're into Montreal, the cars just drive into a shipping container and then they're sent overseas as a form of arbitrage where JLR isn't supplying enough vehicles for the markets. <laughs> yeah. And, and truthfully, in the U.S., it's generally similar, depending on the state. It's very similar that police will usually not proceed, pursue over a certain speed. And let's face it, the Range Rovers, Range Rover Sports, they can do those speeds. <laughs> See, well, this, we should go back to the old days when they couldn't go faster than 40 miles an hour. Back in the, in the 80s in, in California, they had some pursuit Mustangs and that sort of thing. But the rank and file CHP officers drove Dodge Diplomats. Mm -hmm. And if, and if they, one of those pulled you over, the first thing the, the officer would do is thank you for stopping because he had no way to catch you. Moving yeah. on to Canadian news. We have some Canadian content this month. First up. Arriving in style, defender to deliver the Grey Cup on game day. It did. The Canadian Football League and JLR have partnered to ensure the Grey Cup arrives unscathed and secured for the 110th championship. As the official luxury sport utility vehicle partner of the CFL, a defender, 110, will deliver, did deliver, the iconic trophy to Canada's largest single-day sporting event, on November 19th at Tim Hortons Field in Hamilton. <laughs> Could it get more Canadian? <laughs> and I nice. assume they have already planned for 20 years in the future to do the 130th That's sponsors right. get sponsorship those, as well. You got to get the 130 in there. They could do the 120 because that's really what the, the 110 is. Yeah, but then they have to change badges and that's expensive. Well, I don't know. Just, just put a, just stick a tape measure on the side of it. It becomes obvious. And yep. continue on on the other side of Canadian news. This is the Ontario's top ten most stolen vehicles of 2022. The number one most stolen vehicle in Canada. This is the there's the subsection uh, part of this article. That was the headline I just read you. The top ten stolen vehicles in Canada by theft frequency. And this is based off of the number of insured vehicles and the number of thefts of which there were 34,201 insured vehicles and uh, 1,343 thefts of the full-size Range Rover. Landing in first place. Good in job, first Landon. place wow. in 2022. For reasons that Dixon laid out, they can, they can stick them in shipping containers and they send them overseas because the, the premium, the high-end stuff is in demand in some of these countries where they don't necessarily care about the legality of its origin one of the canadian uh, news programs they found a stolen car in i think it was in kenya or tanzania it still had the original ontario license plates on it <laughs> nice nice <laughs> but nothing could be done if nice. it was in that country right and the 
Second most stolen vehicle in Canada in 2022, the Jeep Gladiator, followed by the Lexus mm-hmm. RX, the Pass- Honda Passport, the Toyota Highlander was in there, Dodge Durango, and the Jeep Cherokee. Oh, the Ford F-350? That's interesting. That's yeah, that's probably well, a part parts thing. They steal it for the parts. I didn't think there were that many th- F-350s in Canada, period. Yeah, but, but the F-Series is the number one selling vehicle on this continent decades upon decades so you steal one you cut it up for the parts and you make a lot of money the parts right. are in high demand now interestingly number eight is the honda crv with four what is it four hundred and seventy thousand almost number of vehicles are registered, registered. Yeah. <laughs> those are probably also being stolen for parts or joy rides or things like that it's it's funny seeing the the numbers of those because the F-350, that's a lot closer, 45,000 insured, closer to the 34,000 of the Range Rover. They yeah, I'm, just, I'm looking at the percentages, though. It's 1% of, of the Ford F-Series are, are being stolen, whereas it's, what, 4% of the Range Rovers. Yeah. And next up, used cars with big profit margins. And this is also out of the UK. Land Rover dominates a list of used cars that make dealers the most profit as top 10 revealed, the Discovery 4 tops the list with an average of thir- 4,340 pounds of profit in each car. The rest of the list then is after that. This is again, this is the UK. This is the used car profit margin for 2022. And the, as I said, the Disco 4 gets them over 4,000 pounds in profit, that followed by the Disco Sport at 3,700. The Range Rover Sport. 3,700 again, the Evoque, 3,500. Then we have an Audi Q5, Kia Sorento, the Q3, Volvo, BMW, and an Audi at the bottom of the top 10. Whereas in this country, the biggest profit margin in used would be the Legacy Defender. Yes, 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 you are. (laughs) Yes. Speaking of the new Defender, we weren't, but I'm going to do that as a transition. The Land Rover Defender SVX might be U.S. bound if the spy shots are accurate. This is from Motor One. When we last saw a camouflage Land Rover Defender SVX, we caught something new in the grill. And it's just above the grill, and it suggests this Defender is bound for the U.S. Focus your gaze on a strip between the headlights. Some of the photos show a bit of an orange, but a couple of images reveal three distinct orange squares. Those sure do look like amber marker lights, which are required in the U.S. for vehicles that are at least 80 inches wide. It's why you see them on rigs like the Ford Bronco Raptor. And seeing them here means the SVX, Defender SVX, is indeed a bit wider than the standard model. Provided these lights installed for legal use in the U.S. and not just for testing purposes, they believe it's coming to the U.S. Yeah, it would have to be on the rear as well in red if they if they mandate those clearance lights. Because so there's the front the front lights there, right? And then let's see about the rear. There's a rear shot. I don't see anything there. They've got two in the lower. It's hard to tell whether Down the there. two in the lower bumper. Yeah, but uh, to, yeah. to meet the meet the mandate, there have to be three clustered in the middle. Three. Oh, uh, even on the gotcha. back? Yeah, yeah front oh. and rear. Okay. Huh. Maybe it just didn't get around to it. Interesting. But yeah, maybe not. Well, that you... shot certainly looks like it has a, a Euro plate on it or UK plate. Let's say too bad it's such a complicated paint job on it. I think it'd be fun to paint the Series 1 this way and drive it around. You can get it printed a... and do a wrap. 
I don't know how well a wrap would stick the ref. A little spray glue? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The, the real <laughs> freaky stuff is around the, the grill here. They have this, looks like someone took spray paint over the white. The yeah, I'm grill. calling that that full camo scheme graffiti thunderbolt. Oh, that's a good yes. one. That's a good I one. Like that. that is good. And next up is the new 2024 Land Rover Defender review. This is a buying guide from Autoblog. Not going to read it all. If you're interested in buying one, feel free to go out and check it out. But I'll give you some highlights here as I see them. Pros, variety of engine and body styles, excellent ride, handling interior noise for an off-roader, go-anywhere capability. Cons, subpar fuel economy for a luxury SUV, poor cargo space behind the third rows, pricey trims, not overtly luxurious. What's new for 2024? A second, slightly less powerful V8 engine option is added to the Defender lineup, but its availability depends on the model. Good for 493 horsepower and dubbed the P500, it is the only V8 option for the 130, which wasn't available with a V8 at all last year. It's also the new engine for the Defender 110 SE trim level, but the V8 engine in the Defender 110 V8 trim level, as well as the Carpathian edition, remains the 518 horsepower P525 engine. That continues to be the only V8 engine option for the Defender 90. Confusing? Sure is. How this all makes sense when we're only take, talking an extra 25 horsepower is beyond us. And then they further go on to say a new Defender 110 County exterior pack also debuts for the S and SE trim levels. It features special graphics, unique wheels, including an option to have them painted to gloss white which I think is, that's probably the best thing I've heard for the new Defender. You can have your wheels painted. I guess almost, it sounds like you can make, have them painted as steelies, as the steel white. There's a, there's a um, lot here. You can go on a bunch of pictures, interior, and they also give you the price list, the breakdown of the, the Defender pricing. And I'm sorry, that is not it because there's a couple things at the bottom I was going to read here. Here's the price list. And it, it ends with the safety ratings and driver assistance features. Standard on every Defender is forward collision warning, automatic emergency braking, lane keeping assist, blind spot warning, driver inattention warning, a 360 degree parking camera, and wade sensing. Adaptive cruise control is a standalone option. The Defender still has not been crash tested by a third party. There's your 2024 Land Rover Defender. I have to say, I'm, I'm curious since we really only are comparing the horsepower of the V8s. I'm curious whether there's a slightly different torque curve or any of those. Yes, I believe you're it, right. It's mentioned in here. I don't think I read it, though. I think they, did they talk torque? Oh, no, they did not. I thought they had on this one. Sorry. Yeah, it's, people don't talk torque enough. It's more important than horsepower. Yeah, and especially since the they're only offering the lower horsepower model in the 130. Which and actually that may, may just be a that may be a compliance thing because the the one the one thirty may be heavy enough that they needed the smaller engine to make emissions. True. Yeah. It, it sounds counterintuitive, but sometimes that's how it works out. But would that be right. be actually a different size, or it just be tuned slightly differently? Same engine, differently tuned. Or when you say yeah, different yeah, size, yeah. do you mean physically different in its size? Isn't the isn't the the five twenty five a larger displacement than the five hundred? Not necessarily. That 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 indicates that it gets more horsepower. 
because okay. the, that's right. right. They switched to the yes. The P five hundred gets four ninety three horsepower. They round up to five hundred. The the P five two five is like five eighteen, and I think they rounded that up to five twenty five. Yeah, I thought there was a displacement difference between the two of them as well. I didn't. Uh, I see, could be. I could be wrong about that. I didn't see that listed, Harold. So that's. I, I don't recall seeing but, that as but, a difference. Yeah, a lot of times when you when you turn the wick up to get more power, you also do some emissions things. Okay. Right. Okay. That that makes some sense. If you're interested in the 2024 Defender, especially here in the U.S., you want to get a good breakdown of what's available and what's new. You can check out that auto blog article. And then next up is the 2024 Range Rover Velar. This is a car and driver review. I'll give you some couple little bit of information here on the tweaks for 2024. For the new year, the Velar makes many of the same changes that happened in the Evoque for 2024. A new grille sits between the slender pixel headlights. 268 LEDs in each headlight adjusting their illuminations to shine all available light on the road, not into the eyes of oncoming drivers. And in back, reshaped LED taillight signatures sit above new rear bumper and redrawn diffuser inserts that eliminates openings for the exhaust finishers. Yeah, it just looks more like a disco every day, it seems. And then they say, which brings us to the perplexing, the Velar is uninteresting to drive. Its dynamics as reserved as its interior design, powertrains carry over unchanged. The Velar steering feel, tendency to understeer and quietude on the go, were similar to what we experienced in the Evoque, and the brake pedal feel was just as spongy. However, the Velar's ride on the standard steel springs were firmer and less pliant than the Evoque's. And Range Rover says that against its rivals, the three pillars guiding the Velar's development were design leadership, the greatest refinement, and the most off-road capability. And Car and Driver says it succeeds at all of them. Note that none of these are concerned with performance or visceral reactions. That's their kind of summation. <laughs> also, the Velar sales in paltry numbers here in the U.S., 5,283 units through the end of September 2023, compared to 21,300 units for the Porsche Macan over the same span. So there's your new 2024 Range Rover Velar. Sounds over-refined. I think the word you're looking for is reductive, sir. Yes. It is truly reductive. They mentioned in this article, which they're... I tend to agree this is almost what the new Range Rover full size should really look like. Instead of being you know, a little less boxy, have that I think it looks better. Yeah. To me, it just still looks it looks like a disco, even more so now. All right, moving on to more Canadian content. Well, really it's def it's destination defender content. We have an article from the Canada point of view and one from the US point of view. And this is from driving.ca. The headline here is Land Rover's most off-roady model celebrated at Destination Defender. Now in its third year, Destination Defender, actually the it's in the Destination Defender's in its second year. It's the third year of the Defender Service Awards. But it's a festival of all things mud-spattered and off-roady. This year's event was held on the sprawling Iron Horse Ranch, a one-and-a-half-hour drive outside of Houston and drew Land Rover's owners from across the U.S., there were a few discoveries and Range Rovers in the crowd, as well as some vintage machines, but the vast majority of the attendees were in the new Defender. All of them got muddy, but that just made them look better. Dirt is basically Land Rover's mascara. I thought that was a good line. Ooh, I like that. I do. I like that too. Yeah. Right here. Dirt is basically Land Rover's mascara. And they go on further. Attendees of Destination Defender could take their pick of fly fishing, skeet shooting, mountain bike riding, paddle boarding, kayaking, or a host of other activities. 
that wouldn't be out of place on the TV show Yellowstone. You could also learn off-roading skills, winching and recovery, and try your hand at a challenging off-road course with an instructor and a loaner 110. Or if you were well below driving age, there was even scale-sized electric landies for kids to try out. There were camping and glamping, and each night over the weekend also incorporated musical performances on the main stage. Basically, picture a sort of off-road themed music festival and you're halfway there. Even better, Land Rover folds in charitable work into the celebrations for Defender owners with the Defender Service Awards. That's in its third year. These shine a spotlight on various hardworking nonprofits in five categories and present each winner with a new custom Defender 130. Doing so is obviously great marketing for Land Rover to show the Defender still workhorse in their range, even as grown in complexity and capability over the originals, but also benefits a lot of people doing usually valuable volunteer work. And this year, Canadian charities were the runaway winners. This year, Land Rover says some 440,000 votes were cast. And the search and rescue category was won by the Squamish SAR in in uh, British Columbia. Kathy Wolf says, we just really want to find a way to thank the community. We're going to have to throw a big party and we're still figuring that out. Jessica Harson, co-founder of Manitoba Underdogs Rescue in Winnipeg, winners of the animal welfare category, credits her local Jaguar Land Rover dealership for helping craft their entry. And Al DeJonova, president of the Honor House and Honorary Colonel in the Canadian Forces, winning the veteran outreach category. Carrie's special meaning Honor House is based in New Westminster, British Columbia, and provides stays and support for Canadian forces and emergency service personnel undergoing medical treatment in the greater Vancouver area. All three nonprofits will receive $25,000 U.S. cash to help with their work. Thanks to Pelican, Animal Planet, and Hearts and Science, the runners-up finalists in each category get $7,500 donated to their charity, although I didn't have a list here of the runners-up. And each, res- each representative of the three charities that were able to take part in Destination Defender events enjoyed a hard-earned weekend off. There was also a chance to swap stories with their fellow finalists and grow their network. I really hope that the, the nonprofits that get these Defender 130s do not have to spend that $25,000 on insurance. <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting. Yes. Zing. Yes. On the, on the other side of the border, a Texas-sized helping of Land Rover culture, Destination Defender 2023. This is from Gear Junkie. And there's a whole long article. I'm not going to read it all. It's going to pull out a couple relevant parts and you'll see why. More My Speed with a presentation from Underpowered Hour podcast with Mike Bishop of Land Rover Classic and Lauren Wolf, a former off-road engineer at Land Rover UK. Wolf has a very special Defender, and she found it in a fascinating way. She found her Landy while scouring the parts through Land Rover's yard of discarded test vehicles. Part of Wolf's job was looking for parts from former test vehicles that could be reused in new tests. One day, she found a North American spec Defender in a very strange and unusual shade of green. It turns out that this NAS Defender 90 was built as a prototype for the 50th anniversary special edition. That includes a 4-liter V8 diamond plate everywhere, a safari cage, and more. It's not numbered. The rear plate reads first off-road, and it was built especially for the company's head at the time, Wolfgang Retzel. It's the only 50th wearing that particular paint color. The Defender was NAS spec, but it has never been registered. Wolf was able to buy the Defender, bring it back to her home in New England, and has been driving it for the last two decades. There's a little picture for the, we're showing that now, has a little first off there. Sounds like we, we had a missed opportunity to have her at the Diamond Jubilee. It's pretty lucky to 
to have the keys to the the prototype. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the, the keys to the the, the, like, the trash bin. It was like stuff in the trash bin and just going through it. And then also at the Destination Defender event was our guest this month was Nick Dimbleby. Immediately after the presentation, photographer Nick Dimbleby gave a talk about his work taking pictures of Land Rovers around the world. Dimbleby also put on a workshop showing a handful of amateur photographers how to get better shots of their own defenders. Step one, remove the lens cap. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, good allusion to our second hour of talking with him. And moving ahead in the article here about the Defender Service Awards, finalists were determined by a team at JLR, but the winners had to get the most votes from their community. Manitoba Underdogs Rescue, Honor House Society, Karos Adventures, Squamish Search and Rescue, and Youth Sports Alliance, and the Charleston Animal Society all learned of their wins at the dinner and were presented with the giant checks at these events. They'll get custom defenders in a few months. At the end of the night was a concert featuring Fits and the Tantrums. I saw some pictures of that from there. And after the concert came the drones. JLR brought a fleet of drones for a firework display for fireworks replacing light shows like no other. Have you ever seen a Defender driving through the sky? If you were a Destination Defender, you could have. That's cool. I've seen drones do stuff. That's cool. I like so, that. so that's where all the chips went that they can't build trucks with. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And it's facing horizontally instead of vertically, a Series 1 hanging from a tree. <laughs> well played. Although admittedly it is a picture that there's no video we could have seen. Probably, hopefully it did some stuff and they could have made like the, maybe the wheels bounce up and down or something. That might've been. Oh, cool. see now there you go. You right. really want to wow a crowd at a, at a Rover event. Use drones like this to replay the entire gods must be crazy. Oh yes. In, in drones. So that was the Destination Defender event. I know some of the folks that listened to the podcast had gone on. It sounds like folks had a good time from everything I heard. Well, it's, it's too bad that some of our guests who were competing did not win, but hopefully that means that they have a chance next year. That they get to an end of the second chance category or whatever they call it. Well, we tried. We tried to get the Allegheny Mountain Rescue Group. I voted every day from three different email accounts. <laughs> Maybe they found out and may have disqualified some of mine. Who knows? Next up, the Land Rover Defender Trophy Competition is one golden event. So if you want to read about this, you can. This is from Motor Biscuit. Read a couple bits here. The Defender 130 Trophy Edition has a unique golden topographical map design against Santori black paint and black exterior features. Even the recovery points and tow hitch are black. The interior features rubberized all-weather mats, ebony-grained leather, an ebony Borzine headliner, cold climate package, heated steering wheel, heated seats, custom badging and five-seat configuration. Other goodies include an expansion roof rack, Pelican roof box, deployable ladder, electronic winch, mud flaps, and wheel arch protection. And I guess they this is if you were... If you bought one of these 130s, this Defender Trophy Edition, this is bits about the Defender Trophy Edition, then you could attend the Defender Trophy competition. And this edition starts at a manufacturer's retail price of $103,000, but comes with an invitation for two to the Defender Trophy competition. The top prize is a four-day trip to Namibia with routes that include sand dunes, rocky terrain, and around mountains and peaks. The contest was held in Austin, Texas, right before the Destination Defender, October 29th through November 8th. 
Teams of two competed in waves of up to 15 per day. And if you missed that, it's always next year. The Land Rover Defender Trophy Competition is an off-roading competition designed to teach you how to use your vehicle and equipment in the wild. Each team has a Defender 130 with a map with checkpoints along the way. You have a certain amount of time to visit the checkpoints in any order to complete the challenges. And any team can go to any area of the map as they please. So there is an element of strategy in planning your route. And there's more about the event. You can read that in the, the fuller, longer article, but that's the Defender Trophy Edition and a Defender Trophy Competition. It sounds like it with the black and gold color scheme, maybe it should have been held in Pittsburgh, but it's probably more fun on the terrain out there. If you're going to do that here, that's probably not the right time of year, although it could be really nice. If in late October, it could be very nice, especially with the uh, autumn in full swing. No, I think I think if you really want the true off-road experience, you need to come in the springtime during pothole season. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do some, do some black leaning. Really put your suspension to work. Next up from Car Scoops, stretched Range Rover built for the Brunei royal family hits the auction block. And I think this is the second time this has happened, but it finally sold. This is an extensively modified 1994 Range Rover Vogue LSE commissioned by the brother of the Sultan of Brunei. This special Range Rover was built by Townley Cross Country Vehicles as the ultimate Range Rover of the day. It is four feet longer than a standard Range Rover, and the roof has been jacked up by eight inches, resulting in an absolutely massive cabin. It allows the occupants to relax as they would in a private jet. The vehicle eventually found its way into the hands of an owner in Denmark in January of 2008. It's lived out its most recent years in the UK, and the listing notes it has 16,976 miles under its belt. There's more if you want to read about it. And according to the Iconics website, the auctioneer company, it sold for 31,500 pounds. For when a long wheelbase classic just isn't long <laughs> enough. Yeah, yeah. they're going to have to add a few more L's in front of that. <laughs> yeah. This would be the, the <laughs> ULW. This thing's the... massive. And yeah, I think this, again, I think this is the second time this went up. I don't think it sold the first yeah, time about a year ago. Yeah, I think we've seen it before. I, I definitely remember the red leather interior and the, Got that TV antenna on it. Oh, yeah. It's it's very 90s. It's very, yeah. very, very 90s. Mm. And speaking of the 90s, a 1994 Land Rover 90 V8 was on Bring a Trailer. This is a North American Spec 90. This is a North American Spec Land Rover, and it's a yellow soft top. It was on Bring a Trailer. And it's a 3.9 liter V8, 182 horsepower, five-speed manual transmission. It sold, as of the recording day here on November 27th, it sold for $78,502 American. Which is actually cheap for, compared to what 90s have been going for. But I think actually the NAS market is softening a bit. And it seems like they're not going for what they were going for. But the thing is that, and Land Rovers of that caliber are really their collector vehicles. And, and anytime the, the economy tightens up a little bit or the cost of interest goes up, then these discretionary things like hobby vehicles and stuff tend to take a dip. And finally, speaking of buying used and classic vehicles, it seems there's been some discussion lately about the Disco 3, the LR3 being a, it's coming up on what? 20 years now 
it's been 15, 20 years it's been out. 2005 was the first model. Yeah, 18 and, years. And the Fastlane car, which is a like magazine that is on YouTube, they did a 30-minute video on the truth about Land Rover LR3 reliability. If you're thinking about buying one or interested in buying one, I thought was a, a good review of why you should consider an LR3, a Disco 3, maybe even over an LR4. They like the LR3. They say it's more reliable because the engine has more reliability to it than the LR4 does. And they thought it was a, the better value. Part of the conversation they have is that the prices of the LR3s have been coming up lately because it has this perception of, of a better reliability. Or, or because the number of remaining good ones has gotten pretty small. That's possibly it too. Yeah, that, yeah that, maybe that combination of being desirable and reliable and then the, the number decreasing. I mean, D1s have been coming up in value because there aren't many that aren't rusted out anymore. And the entire market got more expensive. They talk about the different engine types. There's the V8 and the V6, and they <laughs> they say go with the V8. V8 is the reliable engine. You oh, can yeah. you can go with the the V6, but it's slightly less reliable. But it does get one one mile per hour better gas mileage than the V8. <laughs> yeah, but that's when you when you're talking about ten miles per gallon, being able to go to eleven is a big jump. That's true. <laughs> Good point, Harold. <laughs> That's what, 10%, right? 10% increase. Yeah, yeah. And and just let's just face it. If you have the choice between six and eight, you're going to want to go for eight. Yeah. They said it sounds good. It's reliable. If you're in the in the market or, or generally interested in that market, go check out this video. It's uh, worth your time. And that's the news for November 2023. And now welcome to the Center Steer Podcast all the way from the United Kingdom. Nick Dimbleby. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Good evening. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Doing wonderful. Nick is a photographer extraordinaire of Land Rovers. And uh, you most recently, at least in my orbit, have written a book called Camel Trophy, The Definitive History. I guess it's a photography book and written. And But we'll, we'll get to that. But where? how did you become uh, a photographer and how did you get into the Land Rover world? Okay, so I'm 50 this year, and I was, I was 50 this year, in fact. Come to the club. <laughs> yes. It all started a long time ago. I was, I was, I've, I've been into cars since I was a kid, basically. It's that classic thing. And in fact, I actually spent, my parents had a, a two-year secondment in the US when I was between the age of two and three. Oh, nice. And they're convinced that being surrounded by, and this is early 70s, so being surrounded by big American V8s and shiny chrome and massive bonnets or hoods, I should say, that basically got me into cars. Hopefully you got out before things went south in terms of cars <laughs> in this country. The 70s were the transition between the cool stuff and the absolute stuff that you want to forget. Yeah, it was probably about 75, 76, I think it was. Ooh, yeah, very, very about... late in the cool stuff and the beginning <laughs> of the malaise. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Anyway, yeah, so I was, I got into cars then, and then I got into just the sort of conversion side. So that was, again, if you remember going fast forward to the early 80s, you remember there was all these crazy Mercedes conversions, Porsche conversions, and also, funnily enough, Range Rover conversions. As a, a sort of a 10, 11-year-old, 
absolutely devouring as much stuff as possible, I got into these Range Rover conversions. And at the time, my father had actually just written a book. And I think it must have rubbed off on me. And I was like, if dad can do it, I can do it. So <laughs> I ended up as a sort of a nerdy, nerdy teenager writing to all these Range Rover conversion companies and asking them if they had photography and giving me some information, brochures, all that sort of stuff, all the stuff that teenage boys do. And then I started to make a scrapbook. And then this scrapbook developed into quite a big sort of weighty volume. And I sent it off to Haynes Publishing in Somerset and said, here you are, here's a book. Do you want to publish it? And to my surprise, they said yes. But at that point, they didn't actually know how old I was. Um, wow. <laughs> joke's on them. Because <laughs> it was all done. It was the early days of computers. Everything was done on, on email. Was, uh, an early, yeah, it was an early Apple Mac, actually. It was a, a Mac LC, uh, no, Mac Mac Classic. And it, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And it was done with a dot matrix printer. And so everything was all done. It was, as far as they were concerned, they were dealing with some proper grown up. Yeah. Because you had a proper computer at that point. Exactly. Yeah. I had a proper computer and I had spell check and everything else. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. But, That's called creating the illusion. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The net result was, and I've got a couple of props here. This was the, this was the end result. So Range Rover, Rover, you're holding Rover. up a book called Range Rover Conversions. I am. Yes, of course. That's right. For the podcast, it needs to be for those that aren't uh, looking on online. On the... So yeah, Range Rover Conversions, which was published by um, Haynes in 1987 when I was 14. So I wrote it when I was 13 and it was was published when I was 14. And that was the start of my sort of career and basically love affair with Land Rovers because as a result of that, so I grew up in Somerset, which is in the southwest of the UK. It's a rural area and my parents were friends with local farmer. And this chap was like, your lad's into Range Rovers. Does he want to come and drive my Range Rover on the farm? So, of course, being a car mad kid, never driven anything in my life, I was absolutely there like a shot. Of course you were. Exactly. So you, you, you ran faster than the Range Rover was capable of going. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So this Range Rover, so this was what, 1987. So the Range Rover was a 1978 two-door. Weirdly, it was a left-hand drive car that had been imported from Saudi Arabia. Hmm. I'm not sure how it ended up in a farm in Somerset, but this particular vehicle was pretty, pretty knackered. It was not in great shape. It had been worked hard. The seat was collapsed. The back was full of with a, full of hay. It was being used as a farm vehicle to transport animals and all sorts of things. But the important thing was it had a V8 and it ran. And that was that was the cool thing. The farmer had a quite a few fields, but also had a little sort of quarry section. He was kind enough to tell me how to put it into low range and pull the diff lock lever up. And that was it. I was off. And that was my first introduction to Land Rover or Range Rover, I should say. And that's it. That was that was it. You, you never you never forget your first. That's the that's the thing. Did he ride with you or just turn you loose and say, no, he did try, he, to, try to bring it back? He did ride with me. He did. Oh, ride. OK. I think he was sensible enough to bet as a 13 year old that had no idea. I think my parents were there taking pictures. I seem to remember we got some pictures of the event. And um, as also my sister was in the back, she was. She must have been about eight or nine at the time. And so I your first probably... trip ever driving was in a Range Rover left-hand drive in the UK with your younger sister in the back. Exactly. There yeah. you go. And a, <laughs> that was a hero. And a, and a farmer in the, in, the, in the side. Incidentally, he was the brother of Arthur C. Clarke. Whoa. So, no kidding. <laughs> oh, wow. that's cool. <laughs> so, that's yeah, cool. So, he, he also, um, Arthur C. Clarke, came from Somerset and, funnily enough, in the, the same village where I grew up. That's a nice little connection there. What, what, was the Range Rover named Hal? 
No, it should have been, shouldn't it? And we, so again, just fast forwarding on, this is one of these sort of weird twists of fate. So then I think it would have been about four years later, I actually bought that Range Rover. So I actually had that and then also had it as a project vehicle for a magazine called Land Rover Owner that I was working for at the time then. I'd obviously, I'd passed my driving test at that point. So, so I was able to actually drive it properly on the roads. You were um, legit. I was legit, exactly. So yeah, so that's... Uh, already published. Exactly, yes. And I obviously that then led on from obviously the, the book that led on to doing stuff with Land Rover Owner magazine. But where which, does photography come into play in this? Where does photography come into play? So this I think it was probably one of those things that so I started doing photography when I was probably 11, 12. So the Land Rover car photography thing all came together at the same time at a very that sort of impressionable age when you're going from being a, a kid to a, a young adult uh, or an adult that you think you are. And I think the photography, if I'm honest, I probably did the writing in order to get my photography published. Certainly in the case of Land Rover owner, it was those things that if if you want to get your published your photographs published when you're 14 or 15, you better give them an excuse to do it. So you write an article and give them the words and the pictures, then it's a done deal. And of course, the nice thing at that time was Land Rover Owner was a very small fledgling magazine at that point. It was I think it was launched in the late 1986. So and I think my first article was in early 1988. And in fact, funnily enough, it was actually a sort of a, an article about Range Rover conversions. It was a follow on a bit of a promotion for the book, if you like. From then on, the, the then editor, Richard Thomas, said, we'd like to do some more stuff if you can. So I started to do more pieces. And then fortunately, I had very supportive parents who were happy to drive me to different places to go and do it because obviously I didn't have a driving license at the time. So I was able to do pieces about, so I did a series about, this is going back a long time now. I did a series about- We got plenty land. of time on the recording card. <laughs> we got we got 35 years to get through. Yes, it was it was a series about working Land Rover. At the time, things like the National Grid, what else did we do? The AA, the RAC, all those classic Land Rovers in service, the police, fire service. I would go and actually, it's crazy when I think about it now, as a 15, 16 year old, turn up at these places and say, I'd like to do an article about your Land Rovers. And amazingly, these people didn't go, oi, mate, you're you're far too young. They actually said, yeah, we'd love to get involved. So yeah, it was, it was great. So I, that was the start of my career, if you like, at school and college. And it's carried on all the way through my sort of academic life until I Left uni in 1995. You're doing photography just because we might have some younger listeners. This is all on film. Sure. Are absolutely. you developing yes, your own film yeah. also? Or are you uh, just... So I did, yes. Most of the time it was stuff, if it was done professionally, I would get it developed professionally. But I did have my own dark room and I had ah. yeah, the old Patterson development tanks, if you're familiar with those. Oh, oh, yes. I don't know the brand, but I know the process. I can picture them. Exactly. Remember the little spools you had to wind, you had to basically... Yeah. Open the, in the dark, yes. The dark, in the dark. Black, that's right. Fumble through and you were then rolling them onto the spools. And then you'd put That would never work today because every time I flip my wrist, my, my Fitbit that's lights it. up and it would okay. ruin the film. <laughs> that's true. You might get a really neat effect. You might get a sort of slight sort of slight fog. Well, everyone would know uh, what time I processed the film and how far <laughs> I'd walk to get to it. <laughs> Flash the time. But yeah, it was all done on film. That was. Oh, yeah. It's, it's it's funny how quickly you forget. But and yeah, I guess my, your articles uh, help pay for the film totally. and for the development, and that's cool. Totally. Any interesting yeah, cameras I, that you had back then? Yeah, so I, this, is, this is another part of the whole nerdy teenager story. I had a, a Saturday job at a camera shop in Taunton, where I grew up, a company called Jessops, and they had an, a nationwide UK network of shops. 
But what they had also was this thing called the second-hand hotline, which was basically you could ring up. Obviously, this is all pre-internet, so you couldn't go online and look at other other shop right. stock. Right. But you'd ring this hotline number, which would then allow this the operator on the other side of the line could look at all the different shops' second-hand stock. And you could then get that stock sent to the shop that I worked in. Now, even though I was only a Saturday boy, they were generous enough to allow a staff discount. And the deal was you could have the, I think it was the buy-in price plus 10% plus VAT, the the sort of- The tax. Yeah, exactly. So I was basically, fortunately for me, earning quite good money as a teenager doing these articles. And then I was able to buy- professional lenses secondhand through the secondhand hotline thing yeah you were you were working at the camera store to support your camera house. exactly yeah basically it was great and 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 again we had a as a group of three friends of mine we were all complete camera nerds and the shop did really well out of us because we were we were just absolutely passionate about photography we knew all about the equipment we were again this is pre-internet so we were reading magazines we were reading books we were learning about stuff all the time and yeah, we did. We were doing quite a good sales jobs. We would be selling cameras, selling video cameras, yeah, all right, that yeah. stuff, VHS, high eight video cameras, all that stuff. Right. So yeah, it was it was good. It was good. It was a good time. And you're taking photographs of cars. I, I assume not just Land Rovers at this point. Yeah, to be fair, it was actually from a sort of inverted commas professional point of view, it was all Land Rovers. Oh, okay. And to be honest, it was, and it really, it was the getting involved with the more automotive stuff didn't really take place until after I'd become a, a full-time professional. Mm-hmm. So Land Rover was basically my entree, which was totally appropriate because that is my passion. Land Rovers are definitely 100%. That's what I That's what I am. If you cut me in half, you get the bleed green, the Land Rover over, right. all that sort of stuff in the middle. An oval there in the middle. I feel the there same is, way. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. If I was into tattoos, I'd definitely have a tattoo. Do, do you leak if you stand in one place too long? <laughs> yeah, the water comes in. That's it. Yeah, you got it. You got it. <laughs> your foot, your uh, driving foot is always wet. I don't break down too much at the moment, though, fortunately. Well, let's keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> you're a photographer. You're working in a camera store. You're also writing articles. So you're doing this all from the beginning. How does this then? And supposedly going to school as well. Yes, I was fitting in a bit of schoolwork as well. Yeah. Did you did you go for, I know the UK is a little different than the US in its uh, secondary education. Did you go for art or writing or photography in your, in your secondary schooling? Yeah, so if you're familiar with the UK schooling, so you've obviously got GCSEs and then you've got A-levels and then, and then you've got degrees. So GCSEs was normal, but the A-levels, so I did history. French and media studies. So uh, oh, sorry, communication studies. So that was the sort of the communication studies was the sort of more, if you like, the creative sort of side of things. And then my degree was media studies with French. So I actually studied French at university as well. And that was a, a place called Sussex University, which is also, they have a school called the European School, or the Euro- School of European Studies. So the degree was basically media studies, French, bit of European history. And then also there was a practical element as well, which was involved filmmaking as well as the photography. So yeah, so I was able to combine the sort of academic with the practical, which is really what my career has ended up being in a way. Make it your business too. It's one of those things that I've never really planned a career as such, but it's been, I've had a sort of a series of fortunate serendipitous moments that have moved me forward, which I'm very grateful for. And I've never had a proper job. I've never been employed. I've always been freelance. Yeah, amazed, really. I've got this far. 
Okay. We'll get found out eventually. <laughs> Maybe. We're going to expose you now on the podcast exactly. right That's now. Hopefully not, hopefully not tonight. <laughs> after, after school, what's the next serendipitous moment that, that progresses you along? Are, are you buying uh, so, your own Land Rovers at this point, or are you? Yeah, so I had so I bought the Range Rover that I was talking about earlier, that nineteen seventy eight two door, right? The hay wagon, yeah, the hay wagon, exactly. So that was basically a total basket case, all the usual rusty bits, um, as, as most teenage first vehicles are. Exactly. So yeah, so that was yeah, the sills had gone, the tailgate, the bonnet. Inner wings, front inner wings was pretty bad. All the seats. Well, the, the upper tailgate was bad from the factory on a Range Rover Classic. Exactly. So, yeah. And, of course, the fact that it had been in Saudi was, had given it a good start because, obviously, there had been no rust then. But then it had spent, I think, probably three or four years on the farm, which was not good for it. So, anyway, so I've, I've got that. And, then again, one of those sort of fortunate opportunities that Land Rover owner decided that that would make a good project vehicle. So, Basically, I did a series of articles of restoring that car back to basically good shape. We did a series, whole series about replacing the inner wings, replacing the sills, replacing the tailgates. It was resprayed. A company called Nationwide Trim did a, a completely new interior. And if you remember back in that sort of period, the early 90s, the Range Rover Classic was still on sale. And I, th- I often think it's quite funny because nowadays, of course, if you look at Range Rover Classic market, People are taking late model cars and trying to make them look old by putting the silver bumpers on and taking the the black covering off the the D pillar, all the sort of stuff that's making it changing the grill to the sort of the vertical grill. Whereas, of course, in the early nineties, we were doing the reverse. I actually tried to make that car look as modern as possible. Put the the later type of wing mirrors on it. The interior was that with a later type of material on the interior. So, yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how things change in that small period of time, the last sort of 30 years. (laughs) Then very much the de rigueur to make it more modern, whereas, of course, now it's the reverse. But anyway, that was that was a project vehicle for Land Rover owner and a whole. And, And your vehicle. And my vehicle. exactly. So you got paid to fix your own truck. I know, it was great, wasn't it? I know, I can't believe really how we managed to do it. And yeah, so it was a a whole series of articles saying that this is how you can do it. And because I think also it's a case of giving people confidence because they might be in the same situation, having a vehicle where it needs restoration, but actually seeing it being done. And I must admit, I'm a complete amateur and novice when it comes to the technical side of things. So it was great. It was a journey for me to be able to learn about how the vehicles are put together. Fortunately, we had quite a few companies that were able to give give their time. But then I was there watching the actual work being done, photographing it, capturing it, and then that would then make the article. So you were getting paid to watch other people fix your truck. I know. It sounds bad, doesn't it? But uh, sounds legendary. <laughs> I want that job. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you almost had an, a second Haynes manual <laughs> ready to go exactly. as That's well it. after should that. Should have, should have been. So that was, yes, that was through the early 90s. And then and then the sad thing is that vehicle, I don't actually know where that is now because Ooh. I actually ended oh. it. So I know it's, it's so lost. Well, I don't. I probably could do a bit of research, but I'm I'm a bit nervous of doing that because I then probably have to end up buying it back, and it would probably be in a really bad state. So I then have to spend a load more money getting it back to how it was. So I'm like a little bit nervous. Maybe you can get paid to do it again. (laughs) Maybe another book. There's a little sequel. See, there's a sequel, right? Re the restoration part two, three, or four. Restoration of the restoration. I probably have yes. to put it back to how it was originally. Back, then so. back to the original. You take it back to the original. Yeah. See, it comes full circle. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually ended up doing a swap because that vehicle I ended up taking on off road quite a lot. So I, I drove it 
a lot off-road in in Wales and elsewhere in the UK where it was possible to drive off pavement. And basically, if anyone that's driven a sort of a a Range Rover that hasn't been highly modified off-road will know, it tends to get quite beaten up quite quickly if you if you take it down some quite serious tracks so i quickly realized that i probably needed to get myself a land rover and again one of those serendipitous moments where there was a magazine called international off-roader in the uk which is now long since closed and in fact it closed i think in about 97 98 Mm. and they had a project car which is tw78x that's the registration It's a 100-inch Land Rover that was a project vehicle from many other magazines, 4x4 magazine in the UK. Obviously, this is all probably foreign to most of the the US listeners, but... Basically, the magazines in the UK, it was there was quite a there was quite a proliferation of four by four magazines back in the day, and that was well, we did get a lot of those here because it was the only source of that kind of material. Exactly, for yeah, a while. Back in the sort of, yeah. But we had to go to a bookstore to find it. It wasn't like on every corner newsstand. Yes, you had to seek right. it. Anyway, so this that particular vehicle was a project vehicle, again similar sort of thing. So it was a Range Rover originally. Same sort of era, late 70s. But the difference being is in while I was basically starting my career in 87, that vehicle was being made into a a 100-inch hybrid. So basically, it was a combination of Range Rover chassis with the Series 2 and Defender bodywork. And again, the reason for that, if you again think about the, the situation at the time, Coil sprung Land Rovers in the mid 80s were really expensive because the 110 and the 90 had only just come out. They're only three or four years old. They were expensive. But of course, the Range Rover had been out since 1970. So there was a, a huge number of 14, 15, 16 year old Range Rovers that were rusty, basically scrap. So what people would do is you would take the Range Rover chassis, take the body off, throw the body away, and then you'd put series two or three body cut to fit over the Range Rover chassis. Yeah, that was popular over here during the 90s because you right. couldn't get the coil-sprung defenders exactly. and such. So same here. thing, you have a proliferation of cheaper old Range Rovers that you yep. could then dispose the body of and then somehow work a little body that went on top. So my vehicle, TW, was one of the first of that. And again, it was done as a project vehicle. <clears throat> and that had run for 10 years in various different magazines. International Off-Roader magazine had it. And then I, when that closed, I then did a swap with the editor at the time and said, I'll have your 100-inch Defender because that's more appropriate for my off-road use. And they took the Range Rover and and that was it. That was the new chapter in Land Rover ownership. Ah, so you had to switch in vehicles. Exactly. I still own that Land Rover today. Oh, wonderful. Oh, great. That's good to hear. Did you name it? Oh, it's called Chew, T-E-W. Because of the number plate. Because of the number plate. Yeah, exactly. Is it still usable? Very much so. It's actually, and this is <laughs> carrying on the theme of project vehicles. So it's actually been rebuilt twice since then. So I had it rebuilt because when I first got it, it was in pretty poor shape, being that it was ten years since it had been made into a, a, a hundred inch in the first place. In about two thousand, I had it rebuilt again. Same thing, and I, I was fortunate enough that I was doing some work with Land Rover Genuine Parts, and I managed to do a bit of a deal where they actually paid me in parts. So I actually rebuilt the vehicle into sort of a little bit of a NAS 90 lookalike. So I had the split doors, the nice NAS door cards, the the ones that are now impossible to get. I had the side indicators. And again, it's one of those things that you always want what you can't get. So 
for us Brits uh, and the NAS 110 were these amazing vehicles with the V8 power and uh, everything else. It was the V8, admit it, it was the V8. Exactly, it was the V8. But of course, I know nowadays everyone wants diesels in the US. Right. But but for us, we had... Or or they want modern (laughs) V8 Chevys, but yeah. Exactly, the good old LS. Yeah, so that was that was that was where we're at. So I got these parts as payment for a photo shoot, and and yeah, so that was rebuilt as a sort of a, a 100 inch NAS lookalike soft top with a 3.9 V8 and the five speed Santana box. And I basically proceeded to then drive that for another 16 years and it slowly deteriorated as these things do. And then in 2016, I had it rebuilt again, just a sort of a a mild sort of basically just a a, a chance to re get everything absolutely perfect and and tidy after 15, 16 years worth of abuse. And and yeah, so I've still got that car now and, and now it's white. So it's white with a Puma bonnet. So it looks a little bit more, if you like, modern inverted commas it's still a soft top lots of the original parts are still there and it's yeah it's a cool car was that a custom made soft top because it's 10 inches longer than it's supposed to be totally yeah or yeah. 10 inches shorter depending on your exactly yeah so the soft top was made the latest version was made by a company called undercover covers i'm sure yep. if you're familiar with that if you're a series owner or you want your canvas your canvas tilt so yeah and they... you want it to last more than six days Exactly. So those guys did a great job. So they basically, I took the vehicle around there. They did all the measurements and and made a, a bespoke hood for the car. So it looks standard. And that was one of the things I was really keen to to do was actually make the vehicle. So even though it's a 100 inch, it looks like it could have come from the production line. It does look, you look at it and go, that's not quite right, but I'm not quite sure why it's not quite right. And that's that was my aim. But it's still on the road. No, making people Very think so. it's important. Exactly. And it's still on the road, very much on the road. In fact, my son and I went to the Lake District in it for an off-road trip with some friends about four four or five weeks ago. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Nice. I Just a little comment back about the, the hybrid, calling it a hybrid. It's something I had to learn early on. What folks mean by hybrid in a land world is not what the modern definition of hybrid is. It has nothing to do with the powertrain. It has nothing to do with the engine. Right. It has to do with taking different bits of Land Rover and mixing them together. Exactly. So, so if you actually did that drivetrain thing as well, would that be like a hybrid squared? Ooh. Could be or a hybrid. So doing a, a full circle restoration is not unheard of then for you. You could get find that classic, uh, your first classic and br- and bring it back and Yes, maybe it's one of those things. I, mean, I do again, obviously I have so I've, in the years of working, obviously being a proper Land Rover enthusiast, I've had to buy a few cars along the way. I'm sure most people will be familiar. You can't have more than one, obviously. And these cars just appear, don't they? So I, like, I can't imagine having as few as one. Exactly. So they just appear and they just draw you in. Yeah. So and also, I bet you have people that come to you and say, hey, Nick, I know you do conversions and you're into Land Rovers. Hey, I got this one up back. Are you interested? Well, I haven't. So I haven't got a conversion. Actually, <laughs> I would really like a conversion, yeah. but it's one of those things, again, time, money, space. And also opportunities, yeah. But yeah, I would love a six-door. There's like a six-door Range Rover that was done by a company, several companies, but there's a company called Glenfrome that, that made one. I, was, I just would like to have that six-door Range Rover. Anyway, but yes, yeah, so I also have a, I have a late 1995 Classic, which I had, that was my everyday car in the mid-2000s. And Soft Ash, exactly, yeah. So that was my everyday car for about 18 months. Those bring silly money, you know. Yes, I've, I say, it's one of those things that, I always say that the cars that I own now, I probably couldn't afford to buy now. I was fortunate I bought them 10, 15 years ago, which which was, again, 
not bought as a sort of an investment or anything like that, just because I love them. And now other people love them as well. And fortunately, they've become a bit more valuable, which is great. You're also fortunate in that you don't have to pay the Yankee tax. What's the Yankee tax then? Once it comes over to this country, the price goes way ah, up. Right, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I guess you guys have got a limited supply, haven't you? That's the thing. There's not Well, and they have to be 25 years old before they right. can bring them in. And by then the price is appreciated. And, and it's odd, but if you look at prices globally, the price of a used Land Rover at 23 years old is far less than one at 24 and a half years old. Interesting. Yes, I can. Well As imagine. they're about ready to come into the U- be legal in the U.S., all of a sudden, all of a sudden the price goes way up. Mm-hmm. And then once it's over here and has a U.S. title on it, that just tax another twenty thousand on the thing. Yeah. Crazy, isn't it? Crazy. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think most of us are all, all enthusiasts, and it's one of those things that the thought of these really expensive vehicles is it's tough, isn't it? Because how do you, if you're an enthusiast without the means, how do you become? How do you actually become an owner? It becomes quite hard. And and just to keep it running or you yeah. got to get parts in and some of them are unobtainium, as we know, unobtainable, or it's expensive to get them over, shipped over. What are you guys, what do you guys drive? What's your sort of, what's your vehicles of uh, choice? I have two, <laughs> of course, because of course, but currently I have a series. we call a good start. That's right. <laughs> I have a 1980 series three. And a 1987-110 that Harold actually has worked on and restored both of those for me. And they both obviously have come into the U.S. Obviously, they weren't U.S. cars. That is correct. They're both right-hand drive. They're both diesel. Excellent. I should say my my 100-inch is left-hand drive. So there you go. That's You you having a right-hand drive in a left-hand market is completely makes perfect sense. And I drive yes. a left-hand drive over here. The nice thing is you pull up to the curb and you just get right out. You're right exactly. there. Exactly. Absolutely. No danger whatsoever from passing traffic. Plus, they're the best cars to drive in an urban setting because you can look down to the left of all the other traffic and everyone else is hugging to the right to see what's going on whereas you can be on the left and you, know, you can make those opportunities in the in the urban rush hour harold why don't you let them know what you're doing sounds well, like harold might take a while to list his yeah <laughs> it's also the mechanics curse <laughs> yeah i have a lot of stuff in my in on death row as i call it my parts fleet but i've had a few discos my first significant land rover of note was a series three ex-military ambulance the marshall meat wagon uh yes yeah I've had a few different types of Range Rovers. I have a Series 1 that's on my queue of, of restoration projects. And if I ever get around to having time to do my own stuff, that's next in line. My daily driver is a 95D130, right-hand drive uh, with a Cummins 2.8 in it. Yeah, good engine. All right, Morgan. Well, mine's, mine's a much Mor- shorter Morgan way. is being very quiet. <laughs> but he also doesn't drive a Morgan. We'll tell you that for, right off. Yeah, 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 I would love to. In fact, I would love one of the three-wheeled Morgans, but that's a different podcast. Yeah, it's I think. proper, uh, proper Morgan. <laughs> Yes. Just come, they've just come back uh, into the States, haven't they? Now there's Super 3. Yeah. That's, that's another one of those things that, that is subject to Yankee tax. <laughs> yes. I have a 82 Series 388 with a Daihatsu diesel in it that I imported many years ago and is currently torn apart for a restoration that I really desperately need to get back to. And I did have a short-lived Disco 2 for a while there. As disco twos tend to be in the rusty part of this country, short-lived. Yes. 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 And I, yeah, live in the Northeast. So uh, yeah, that was 
<laughs> not a good decision. Lately, we've invited Morgan down to Pittsburgh, where Harold and I are located, and Morgan will drive the Series Three for me to to the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix. So he's so yes, loaning out I, to him. <laughs> yes, he's getting yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You can only drive one at a time. So if I got exactly. two, might as well lend it to a friend. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Or as I always say, you got to get at least one this left hand drive if you want to drive two at once. <laughs> yes. Ooh. One of them has to be auto trans as well. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Unless you have Unless some you really, have really long, long arms. arms. <laughs> you had the Range Rover Classic. You have the hybrid, the TUW, you call it. Have you had any other additional Land Rovers since oh, then? I, I also have, I have a few more as well. So I have two other Range Rover Classics. So I have another 95, which is a, a 4.2 autobiography, which is one of six that was built in the UK to basically promote the autobiography program. So right back in the early days when autobiography first started with the Classic, so in the UK market, they built these 26 cars that were bespoke paint, different uh, interior, the lightstone leather, which we couldn't get in the UK. But the main thing was the, the 4.2 V8, which was in the short wheelbase, the 100 inch, because mm -hmm. that was only available in the long wheelbase LSE, an 8 inch. Yeah, so I managed to buy that. I think I bought that in about 2010. So I've had that, you know, sort of 13, 13 years. And then I also bought a 1978 two-door suffix F, which I bought in 2013. And that was one of those cars that I couldn't not buy. It was a friend of mine had it and basically decided to sell it to buy a suffix A. And I'd always said to him, if you sell that car, you need to give me first refusal. So he he basically gave me first refusal. And even though I didn't have the money, I couldn't refuse. So I managed to scrape enough cash together somehow and, and bought it. And um, thank God I did. It's a beautiful car. It's a it was a one owner car prior to the the chap that uh, I bought it from, and uh, the guy had it from new just for towing his caravan uh, a couple of times a year. So when I bought it, it had done forty two thousand miles from new, even wow. though it was a nineteen seventy eight, and it was uh, I bought it in twenty thirteen. Very low mileage, completely original, absolutely immaculate, beautiful car, well maintained, so, very well maintained. Yeah. It had a it had she had a book. So the guy, sadly, he passed, which is why the car was going for sale. But he had a a, a a little notebook with all the things that he did with it, every oil change, every set of tires, brakes, any servicing, any work he did with it was all written down in this hand in this handwritten down in this book. So one of those cars that, as I said, I couldn't not buy it when it came became available. And then I also have a, a Citroen 2CV. Oh, right on. Sweet. That's my carbon offset program. There we go. <laughs> Everything else being V8, little two-cylinder, 602cc Dushevo is my, yes, my little, my carbon offset. Nice. My, my carbon offset is all the dead ones in the backyard that will never <laughs> run again. Well, actually, I should say as well, actually, I do have a Discovery 3 as well, which I use oh. pretty much as my semi-daily. So I also have carbon offset. I also, my, my sort of daily driver is a Jaguar I-Pace electric car, which I lease. And then I actually then bought a, a Discovery 3 2005 model, which had done 100,000 miles. Again, wonderfully looked after. All the owners had, had got all the big thicker book of receipts and all the all the servicing was all stamped and all the stuff had been done at the right time. But unusual car in the sense that it's a cloth interior with the 2.7 V6 diesel and six-speed manual gearbox, air suspension and, and the panoramic roof. Yeah. But everything. Is, is a lot more basic really interesting spec and a, a fantastic car to drive as well even though it's 18 years old it feels beautiful to drive interesting because the 05 disco threes in this country are not something you want interesting isn't it I, don't, I think it's one of those things that it's to me it's a testament on 
if a car is looked after, it looks after you. And I, I clearly, the people that had owned it before, it had four owners before me. And it was one of those things I say, when I saw the car and drove it, it felt good. It looked good. It had been, you know, obviously been garaged from new. And it was just this big wad of receipts. And I thought, this is a car that's had yeah. love. It's been looked after. And touch wood, it's been as good as gold. It really well, is. That, that helps. But the specification, I think, is what I'm talking about. Well, I see. Yeah, the fact is quite, the, quite o, the 05 ones here only came with the V8 and the Autotrans and all the things that give you trouble. Right. Whereas you had the diesel and right. the six-speed. And that, I would love to have that, uh, that in a disco here. I'll give it another few years. It'll be 25 years old. There we go. All right, then we'll talk. <laughs> no, it's not for sale. I wouldn't sell that one. I love it. It's really nice. Is any of those your daily? The Discovery is used, yeah, very regularly. So as I said, I drive as my sort of main car is an electric Jaguar I-Pace. That's my main car. But obviously, as a photographer, you quite often need to do longer journeys into more remote parts of the UK. Right. And obviously, electric cars, they are going to be the future, whether we like it or not. And But at the moment, obviously, when you get to more remote areas, and I'm sure in the US, I'm sure it's even more the case, it's impossible to charge them or very difficult to charge them. So if you've got a long journey, it, is, it can be quite stressful to try and work out how to drive it. So the Discovery was bought basically for when I'm doing longer trips where I don't, I don't want to think about having to plan charging or my 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 itinerary is not fixed. So right. yeah, that was, that's what it's for. So yeah, it's done. I think I did 7,000 miles in it last year, which is not a huge mileage. But obviously, one of the things I, I, mean, I do travel quite a lot as well. So I'm away quite a lot. But 7,000 miles in the Discovery as my sort of second car is a reasonable mileage. So how did you end up becoming the kind of unofficial, official Land Rover photographer? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've worked with Land Rover since 1997, and I feel very grateful to be involved with, with Land Rover for that a huge amount of time. It's been great to be working with the company. Obviously, I'm freelance, so every job I get is a commission. It's that thing of you're only as good as the last job. So fortunately, they keep asking me back, which is good. So touch wood, that, that that carries on. But yeah, my first job was in 1997, which was a commission by a chap who sadly is now passed, a chap called Bill Baker, who was actually the one of the he was one of the founders of, of Land Rover North America or Range Rover North America as it was back in the 80s. And Bill actually came over to the UK on secondment, basically, to, to work in in the UK PR department. And I'd met Bill through Camel Trophy and also Trek 96, which I've been I've been a part of. And Bill then sort of moved over to the UK and he said, look, I've got this new car coming out called Freelander and we need someone to photograph one of the previews. So he asked me to go along and, and photograph basically before the car was officially launched. And it was a sort of a preview event in the UK with, with UK media. And I was asked to, to photograph it. So that was the start of my career with Land Rover. You are now John's hero. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the Freelander is it's one of those underrated cars. Freelander 1 and 2, I think it's they're definitely, the Freelander 1, I think is a bit of a classic. I think in the UK, they're pretty scarce, but I think in the US, they're, they're unicorns, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yes. There is one. It gets repainted from time to create the illusion of there being multiples. <laughs> yes. That's Dixon's line there. He likes to push that theory. That you were at the Jubilee at Greek Peak. How many Freelanders did you see? That's a good point. That's a very good point. I think I think it's versus the 80 inches like Dixon absolutely. likes to point out. Absolutely. I think in a way it's quite sad because I think the Freelander is actually a bit of an underrated car. I think the V6 probably wasn't its finest hour in the US, but well, I, I mean, think that's uh, what killed it. Yeah. That's yeah definitely a, a manual, it. it came back to it, a manual diesel, which we obviously yeah. have here. 
Same yeah, the, the the V6 and that Japanomatic transaxle was the death of the Freelander. Yeah, it's a shame because it was a great looking car. It looked mm-hmm. fantastic. It worked well. It handled. I, I find it fascinating when you look at the history of Land Rover. That period from Discovery One up to Freelander. You know, that, this is the making of, of modern Land Rover. And I remember when Freelander came out, everyone was like, oh, "It's got no low range. Oh, it's not got." beam axles it's independent suspension it was a big deal i think i'm sure you can remember as well it was it was like oh this is the end of land rover it's going to be a disaster and yeah it went on to be the best-selling suv in in europe it was well that's because most people don't drive them off-road they drive them to the store and it was literally just a front-wheel drive station wagon with a couple extra bits on it but again equally a wasted if you drive it to the store it's a wasted opportunity because i've driven freelander ones and twos pretty seriously off road and they're a lot of fun they're really a lot of fun because you have to drive them they've got right. traction aids of course and obviously clearly they're not they're not got a massive amount of ground clearance they're tough things i remember this is going back to a, a later event where i was doing a, an event as a photographer on on a trip. In fact, it was funny enough, it was a US group that was coming to visit the UK. And we were, or they were driving around the jungle track and the off-road area at Solihull. And so I needed a vehicle that was enabled me to get around on the different locations to photograph them as they came through the off-road section. And I was given a Freelander and I was like, oh God, come on guys, you, are you joking? And we're not going to be able to get around the event, around this jungle track and everything else in the Freelander. They're like, you'll be fine. Just keep going. And yeah, it's fair enough. I drove it and it was, it never got stuck. I must admit it was, there were a few interesting noises coming from underneath. It wasn't my car. Yeah, that helps. That definitely helps. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they said, you need to get those places and this is the car you've got to do it. Yeah, they were, they're, they're good little things. And a lot of the features that it introduced are what are the standard safety features on all vehicles these days? Yeah, off-road ABS, the hill descent control. Yeah, that's it. That was the first vehicle in the world to have hill descent. It was windshields uh, that crack when when you heat them up. <laughs> Do you remember the the the, the tailgate? You had to push Pulled the, the thing and a glass and slid the, down. That's it. That's it. We go down. Except it yeah. failed in the cl- open position. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah, every time the battery goes dead, the last thing it does with the last few electrons is lower that glass. <laughs> well, that's getting ready, getting ready to just to allow you to still get into the back of the car. <laughs> or exactly. to reach in there for the jumper cables or something. Exactly, that's it. It's just, it's thinking ahead. How did you become synonymous with the, with taking photographs with the, with Camel Trophy? Okay, Camel Trophy story. My first event in, was 1996. And again, that was incredibly fortunate. That was part of my early career, if you like. And again, one of these serendipitous moments and chance meetings that that all came together to make a, a great conclusion. The first thing was I had a seat on Camel Trophy in 96. So Camel Trophy, you had each team had basically what they known as participating journalists. And these were the, the two back seats. So you had the team members in the front, obviously. And then in the back seats, you had two journalists or photographers that were from that country, Land Rover owner, who I was doing work for. And so I was, what was this, 96. So I'd left uni, so I was just starting as a full-time professional. And so Land Rover owner had a seat, and they basically offered it to another journalist. He actually refused. And then they're like, oh, we'll give it to Nick then. I was fortunate enough that the chap who refused, I ended up having that seat, which was... What um, happened to that guy? His loss... Good <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why I didn't want to do it, but there we yeah. go. So yeah, maybe he couldn't spend. I think that's the other thing is obviously Camel Trophy, it was three weeks away. And obviously, crazy as it sounds, 
if you're a, a professional journalist and you need to get paid, it was quite difficult, I think, to make three weeks work from a financial point of view. If you only did one or two articles, if you had three weeks away, that was that wouldn't pay for your time in real terms. But obviously, as someone that was absolutely desperate to do the event and was at the beginning of my career, I'm obviously I would have paid to go and do it. But fortunately, I was able to get paid to do it, which was amazing. But I guess from his perspective, probably this guy who was later on in his career, probably had a family and mortgage to pay. For him, if he was only doing one or two articles, being away for three weeks, and you had to do the three weeks, you couldn't just pop in and out. That was the other mm -hmm. thing. So I guess that's probably why he turned it down, which which was great. I'm glad he did. Yes. Uh, I wonder if he still regrets that. <laughs> possibly. I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to ask him. Anyway, you, you know who it is? I do know it is. Yeah, I'm yes. not going to ask you to tell us who, but I, I, but it's interesting <laughs> that you actually know who it is. That's that's cool. Yes, yeah. It's actually it's actually a chap. He's a journalist called Brett Fraser. Mm. I think he was he would have been. I think oh, he he's been, been outed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but so I had this seat, which was fantastic. But at the same time, a friend of mine was working at the London Boat Show. And he happened to meet a chap called Lee Farrant, who was there just as a guest, as someone who was uh, interested in boats. And they got talking and he got onto the topic of Land Rovers. And Lee was the director of photography for Camel Trophy. And my mates said to him, you need to speak to my friend, Nick. He's a really keen Land Rover photographer. And he's like, okay, great. Here's my card. Tell him to get in touch. So I got given this card and, and rang Lee up. And again, one of these sort of amazing serendipitous moments he lived about six or seven streets away from where I lived in London. So we met up at the pub and had a chat. And uh, and Lee's, it's fantastic. You've got a seat on the event. Let me do you a deal. I'll give you film and I'll get it processed because one of the things that people don't know is Camel Trophy was obviously all on film those days. And they processed the film at a mobile darkroom that was set up in the hotel. So the film was flown out of the convoy and then processed on as the event was going live. So he said, I'll give you a film, get it processed. But the deal is I'll give you all that film back, but I need to have the first pick of all the shots that, that you take and I can add them to our edit. Obviously, I was like, absolutely. Sounds brilliant. Let's do it. So that's what happened. And the next year I was asked to go back and be part of the official photographic team in 97. Obviously, I did a reasonable job and, and Lee asked me back. So yeah, very grateful for that. Sounds more than reasonable if they asked you back <laughs> so quickly to do that. That's excellent. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then obviously, so the Camel Trophy, I did 96, which was my first year, 97, 98. There was no event in 99. And then also the last event, which was in boats in 2000. So yeah, Camel Trophy is very much part of my sort of early photographic history. And I think is responsible, if you like, for my love of travel and Land Rovers and getting out there. So it was a really great introduction. Are you helping the team as you're going through? Are you like also a participant then during the Camel Trophy? Yeah, so that's that was the, very much the role of the participating journalist was you were there to be part of the team mm -hmm. you had hence, to hence the word participating absolutely that's it the deal was so on the I don't know how familiar everyone's kept with what camel trophy was but certainly in the later years the way it worked was there was two elements of competition at the beginning and the, at the end of the event and then in the middle there was the convoy so that was the bit where you got from a to b and went through all manners of hell to get to b and but the competition bit 
obviously we were not allowed to assist in that element, but the actual convoy, we were very much expected to help with the winch and do a bit of driving. If you'd done, if we'd done sort of 24 hours worth of nonstop, we would share the driving. We would help get the tents up. We would help get food ready. Those sort of things that just generally keeping everyone going and, and keeping the team running, basically. And different teams would have different levels of participating journalists. There was some of the teams like the, the French and I think the South Africans as well, the participating journalists would be there doing an amazing sort of cooking up this incredible food. The Italians as well, they'd be cooking up this big pasta pot. Whereas, of course, us Brits, we just had bought in the bags, <laughs> which were very good. They were very yes. good. Yes. And the advantage of those was you could actually cook them on the engine. The, oh, yeah. the 300 TDI has a rubber flap. I don't know if you're familiar with the 300 TDI, but there's like a little sort of sound deadening cover that sits over the top. I don't know if you're familiar with these Wayfarer boiling the bags. They're about mm-hmm. they're these heat-proof things. You're meant to put them in boiling water, right. but actually conveniently fit underneath the rubber cover of the 300 TDI. So you can line them up, the four boiling the bags on the top, and then leave them there for 20 minutes, and they're all cooked, and they're all nice and hot. Nice. There you go. Just go down a trail, and it's time to eat. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Any harrowing adventures while you're on the camel trophy while driving or going through the muck probably the first year was the most crazy in terms of tough times because that year was the year that um we did 500 miles in two weeks it was pretty much non-stop winching mud bridges that were non-existent it was just slow going i think one of the phrases was because the vehicles were just being non-stop winched the vehicles were just a way of actually carrying the winches and that was the that was the primary force of motive traction and yeah it was just just crazy times there's lots of things it's a long time ago now but i think just talking about it now one of the things i remember was one of the, th- the techniques that they used to get the vehicles through on camel trophy and of course you've got to remember this was before traction control this was before all the clever stuff that 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 nowadays helps get vehicles through the mud that's one of the reasons why camel trophy you quite often see cars flying through at high speed was because it was the old was it the fastest possible and as slow no slowly as possible and as fast as necessary in most of the cases with to get through the, the terrain in camel trophy you had to be foot to the floor third gear low and off you went but i remember being we were being at the the back of a i think it was a seven or eight car snatch pull so the idea being that if you rope the cars together the car in front gets through the obstacle, pulls the next one through, then pulls the next one through and so on. But of course, if you're right at the back of that that caterpillar of, of rope, you're basically out of control because the car at the front doesn't know what you're going through and he's trying oh. to get through. So I remember we were crashing. You're, you're the bit in the middle of the slingshot at that point. Yeah, exactly. And I remember absolutely we were just hanging on for the ride. That was the... And it was dark and there was the, the roof lights on. and But it was it's one of those things that it's a long time ago, but I still remember it really vividly thinking, oh, my God, we're going to die here. Which but we is, still probably feel it on a cold morning. Exactly, exactly. These poor things, the cars overloaded, smashing down with the suspension. It was, yeah, quite a unique time. But it's, yeah, fun memories. Yeah, that's Mongolia, correct? No, that was in that was in Borneo. Okay. So Mongolia was a little right. bit more straightforward. That was when the event sort of moved on a little bit to the more adventure travel aspect. Still some tough routes. But that was more about the sort of the mountain biking, kayaking, orienteering, that sort of thing. So it became a bit more about the sports side of things. Again, there were some tough tracks, but less of the sustained stop winching for 19, 20 hours at a time. Were you a participating journalist with the bikings and the 
swimming. No, no. I was by then. I was I was a full time proper. I was a proper official photographer. So I got to to ride along with a chap called Mark Day, who was lead scout. He would be ahead of everyone else, and basically my job was then to capture the event, but all parts of the event, not just the UK team. That was the the start of, of that journey. So you didn't get to ride in the back of the Freelander then for Terra del Fuego in '98. No, I didn't. No, Aww. I I was I did get to go along with the Freelanders, but I had a I think I was in a Defender that year. Yeah, I had a Defender one ten. Okay, well, they yeah, gave we you your own one ten at your disposal f- for Camel Trophy. Um, yeah, so oh, we, that's we cool. Did, yeah, I say it wasn't just mine. Obviously, we shared it with other people, but we had a translator and a medic in the car as well. And obviously, that's the thing you need to have. One of the things that is. When you're covering a, an event like that, you need your own vehicle in order to be able to choose where you go. And it is, it's quite it's quite tricky because you don't, with those sort of events, and what was then later G4 Challenge, you didn't know where the teams were going to go. So you had to try and get as much intelligence from the teams to tell them where they would end up going. But at the end of the day, there was no guarantee. So it was a, as much a mapping exercise and trying to anticipate and also find the best locations. Yeah, there's a, a lot going on as well as the photography. You're in the, the Campbell Trophy. You're actually a participating journalist. And, and how does that lead to you coming out with a book on the definitive history of the Campbell Trophy? So I've been <laughs> Sit a, back. I, I guess we're not, time to have a little drink maybe for this one. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Get a, get a whiskey down. So yeah, I've been a, a fan of Camel Trophy since I was a teenager. Again, it's that thing where uh, the story I told earlier with being involved with Range Rovers and the Range Rover conversion side. So obviously you've got Range Rovers and the sort of luxury, amazing conversions. But of course, you've also got Land Rover and Adventure. And this is the one of the reasons, again, why I think Land Rover as a brand and also why I love it is because it's that incredible versatility of the conversions, but also the fact that Land Rovers are an enabler for adventure. They are Camel Trophy as a car mad teenager. I was looking at these amazing pictures of Camel Trophy 90s submerged up to their windscreens in water, people swimming out of the doors. And again, that 85 event where the, the helicopters are lifting, airlifting the, the Land Rovers out of the jungle, vehicles flying left, right and centre with mud everywhere and winching. And I was like, how can I not want to be a part of that? That is, that's a, that's your dream job as a teenager. And again, for various lucky ways i managed to make it into a my my career and then having been a, involved with the last four camel trophies i was a camel trophy nut before i did the event so being involved with the event enabled me to get to know the people that ran it the individuals that had been there from the early days because a lot of people had run had been involved with camel trophy and were involved with it for you know many years so i knew those people and i'd always had that thing in my mind that i wanted to do a book because there, there were books, or there are books about Camel Trophy, but they were all really old. They were written back in the 80s or the early 90s when the event was going. So I'd had that sort of wish to, to do a, a, a book, if you like, the definitive history. But of course, there's no time. And then COVID hit. And obviously, we all remember back in March 20, 2019, the world's all carrying along. And then all of a sudden, this weird virus starts appearing. And at the time, we were actually in Namibia doing the, the global launch of the Defender, the new Defender. And we were in, in Namibia, not really in contact with the outside world as such, but hearing about this thing, we get back in early March. And then two and a half, three weeks later, we're all in lockdown. And it was it was a, a serious time. I think we've all forgotten it. It was a big deal. And then as March goes into April, and I had six weeks worth of work that was cancelled overnight. And I'm suddenly thinking, 
what am I going to do for all this time? And then as the virus got worse, and I'm, you know, I'm sure we all remember this, there was there was nothing. There was, you know, we literally, there was no work. So I was like, this is an absolute perfect opportunity to write my book on Camel Trophy. I cannot think of a better time to do it. And it was great. I absolutely loved researching it. It was a total passion project. And I think it was my full-time job for seven or eight months while we were in lockdown. It was absolutely all I did. And it was great. I got in touch with all the, the people that were that I'd worked with on Camel Trophy 16, 17 years before. And they put me in touch with other people and Camel Trophy Club as well in the UK, very active club. They were very helpful. Bob, um, UK team winner, he's very involved with all, he has a very good network of all the Camel Trophy guys. I got to speak to Ian Chapman, Nick Horn. They were the event directors while I was involved. But one of the important things that I really wanted to do was tell the story back in the 80s, because of course, that was an area that hasn't really been told unless you were there in the 80s, that that stuff has all disappeared, that sort of that element, and it was very difficult to find stuff. So I got on eBay, I started to buy old magazine articles, I did a lot of research on those magazine articles. One, for example, which was absolutely fabulous was a US journalist called Fred Stafford, who wrote an article on the 1982 Camel Trophy for I think it was Motor Trend. I bought this copy of Motor Trend on eBay and then through the internet had basically traced Fred Stafford and rang him up and said, Fred, you don't know me, but I'm writing a book on Camel Trophy. Have you still got your old photos? He goes, oh, yeah, I probably have somewhere. And as an absolute gentleman, he went up into his his, his loft, took him a couple of weeks and he found his original transparencies that he had left. Wow. Was kind enough to scan them in, sent me a few and these amazing pictures came back, stuff from, which was 1982, many years before. We were talking 35 at the time years, right. no more, 30, 37 years. So yeah, and it was, it's mothballed. And it was, it was for me, an absolute privilege to be able to have the time and the contacts and just being able to bring all that together into a book. And I don't know if you've had a chance to, to sit down and spend many hours reading it because it's not the slimmest of volumes. It's it is, not. It's very definitive. Yes, it's in the title, definitive, yeah. Is there a story from the early years that stands out to you that would entice folks to maybe pick up the book and, and read more? Yeah, basically, it is one of the things that I really enjoyed. And I, I knew quite a lot about Camel Trophy, but in the, the time I researched the book, I learned an awful lot more. And again, talking with people, another person I spoke to was Graham Fazakali, who was the, the chap that was responsible for Camel Trophy at Land Rover in the early 80s. And again, an unbelievable um, collection of pictures that I managed to get from him. The build of the first 110s that were, were made for the 84 event. These were prototype Land Rover 110s that were painted Sanglo. They they designed all the roll cages, all the, the roof rack equipment, the, the warm winch installation, all these things were done for Camel Trophy. And Graham had all the original photos of these cars being built. Amazing stuff. Andreas Bender as well, who is someone that probably no one's heard of, but he is the father of Camel Trophy. He was a German guy at the time. He was 23 in 1980. And he, he, he was a young guy, a German, very confident. And he managed to persuade RJ Reynolds, the tobacco company, because of course, you've got to remember it was cigarettes initially. And Andreas basically convinced RJ Reynolds to give him a few million dollars to go and run an event in Brazil in 1980, which the time was with the Jeeps, the, the license built Jeeps in Brazil. And that's where it started. So Andreas is is the father of Camel Trophy. And going back to 
once the book came out and again i managed to contact andreas and and he was actually incredible with with opening up his own personal archive of of material because he had stuff images and photographs and stories that that hadn't really been told before we did a book launch for the the book in 2021 which was at, at bob ives farm and was put together helped by the camel trophy club and I invited Andreas along, and to my incredible surprise, he actually turned up, and him as well as Graham Fazakali. And these are people that they worked out that the last time they saw each other, so bear in mind this is 2021, the last time they saw each other was in 1985 at the airport in Borneo, where they waved goodbye to each other, and that was the last time they saw them until they met at the farm, whatever it is, 36 years later. Yeah, wow. Amazing. Wow, yeah. <laughs> in terms of stories, there are so many stories. You need to... To sit down and, and spend a few nights with the book. There are yeah, incredible stories of, again, one of the things I found fascinating was how much the world has changed since that first event. There's a there's actually a chapter about the photography and the videography and the logistics and actually the way that, that the event was run in terms of the photography. It was all film, as we were saying before. The video was all tapes. So, for example, there's a photograph of Simon Fitzgerald, who's the who was the main guy for the videography in the later years, with this lipstick camera on a huge mount on the side of the car, which, of course, nowadays it'd just be a GoPro. Easy. But, of course, there had to be a lipstick camera with a separate monitor. They had to set it all up and lock it all off. Just a lot of effort. And the fact the world has changed. Fred Stafford, who I talked about earlier, he told me that he remembered it being... When he went to Papua New Guinea, which was in, in the 1982 event, he said it was like going back to the Stone Age. And of course, you've got to remember, this was way before the internet. It was way before commercial air travel was there, but it wasn't something that, you know, you, when you travel, going to Papua New Guinea was, people didn't go there, did they? It wasn't somewhere that it was on the tourist trail. It was, they still don't. No, exactly. That's exactly the point. And you think about then, it was these places where they had not seen Westerners before. These the, you would, They would turn up with these Sanglo Range Rovers with these crazy looking people with big beards and some of these tall German chaps. And these local tribes would be absolutely awestruck. They wouldn't understand what was going on because... They were there was no connection with the outside world. There was no satellite. There was no GPS. All these things that we now take for granted, they didn't exist. And I think that was one of the things that when I was doing the research of the book, was actually I found absolutely fascinating that this is recent history. This is all within all our lifetimes. And yet it's a completely different era, different world. And I think that the fact that Camel Trophy in the 20 years that it went, it did change as an event, but also the world changed in that period as well. And I think it for me, that was actually almost like a little bit of a subtext in the book that I found really interesting. It seems like the same thing has happened since in yeah, that sure. the difference between the early years and the later years in terms of technology. And you think of the later years, the internet was around, but it still was such a different process. But now to have the whole world shut down and a period where you're like, oh, you actually had this passion project where you could dive fully into it. But also everybody else was able to, you were e able to easily call or video chat them. They were able to scan and send you photos. Like all these things have just changed dramatically to make all of this happen. Yeah, that's it. Again, you, you got to remember, I remember the last, I think it was the last two or three events, cameltrophy.com, which obviously is now no longer in existence, but cameltrophy.com as a website, was obviously their official website. And I remember we had very early digital cameras in those last events, 98 and 2000. They were 
I think the first one was about it's about thirty or forty thousand dollars just for the camera because wow. it was a very early digital camera. I think it was like a one point two megapixel rubbish, really yeah. compared to your phone is multiple many times better than that now. But incredibly uh, high tech for the nineties. But it was absolutely, and that last event in two thousand, which was on the boats, we were sending images back from our laptops coupled to a satellite phone, which was uh, you know quite a big. It was, again, the same size as a laptop, and you had to go and basically manually find the satellite according to a little chart that showed you where the satellite would have been at that particular time, and it beeped, and then you would lock onto it, and then you could send the pictures. But again, you know, those pictures that we were sending were 450, 500 kilobytes, not megabytes, kilobytes. Kilobytes, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. You know, tiny little things that would be mm-hmm. on a HTML web page but we were like wow this is incredible and now here we are talking over zoom with (laughs) quite good uh, quality too yes exactly yeah Mm -hmm. incredible that's 20 years time or 23 years since that last event i just think in the photography side of it with camel trophy of going from processed film to instant pictures you can show someone you can take a picture and instantly show that to them that just that part it just shows you the change in that period of time or you can just take the picture and look and see if it turned out and if not get another one yeah we never knew so you got to imagine so when we started the event it was a three-week event we had a load of film i think we were given about 500 rolls of film at the beginning those films would be picked up by helicopter on a probably every two days the helicopter would come down to the convoy and we'd give our films unprocessed they'd then be flown back to the hq to be processed in a lab that was set up in a hotel room over that three weeks we had absolutely no idea what we'd shot so literally (laughs) you had you would be there taking pictures but you didn't know whether they were any good you didn't know what you'd captured i mean you'd got so the photographs were edited by a picture editor and he'd give you he'd send back notes over the radio this is the other thing there was a comms car that would have communication with the hq every evening but over hf radio and you'd have a list and say oh we need more pictures of the swedish team because we've only got four or five of those so can you please concentrate on more images of that or we need less shots of the russians or we need more shots of the french or less car stuff or more car stuff so all that information would come through and they did actually have also a, a league table of which photographer had done the best shots that day so that was I was always a little bit of competitiveness as well. Oh, you're getting scored. That's it. Oh, yeah, we got scored. But equally, we never knew what we'd shot. We didn't have any idea until the end of the event, and you'd be able to look through the edit and go, that was one of mine, that was one of mine, that was one of mine. Um, <laughs> have, have you ever watched the DVD that Graham Aldous put out on the first Overland? I haven't seen that one, actually, no. Oh, no. You, you should, because it's good. Yeah, yeah. But but he, he was able to get some of the original films from BB and, and put them back together. And it's the first time they were ever shown in color, by the way. Oh, but okay. one of the bonus features on that DVD, Graham sits down with one of the cameras that BB used, and he was describing how incredibly difficult it was to get any kind of a shot out of that camera. And then couple that with the fact that, like you're saying, the films had to get mailed back to England for processing. Yep. They had no way of really ever knowing if they turned out or not. The, and the BB whole... being, I don't know what, but he just, he nailed it every freaking time. 
I've seen footage from the expedition. There's some great shots. And it's those moments. Yeah. On. That's, that is our job as a photographer, filmmaker, is to capture those incredible moments. And it's it's always a challenge. One of the nice things about shooting an event like Camel Trophy is there is stuff happening. There's cool stuff happening. People are doing interesting things with the Land Rovers. But equally, you've got to be able to be in the right position to capture it and tell the story, which is one of the things that I think gets me out of bed every morning. I really enjoy the the act of telling a story and capturing moments in time. That's And, and you've got to be ready to catch it when it's happening because you can't say, hey, guys, can you back up and do that again for me? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And as you say, with the film days, and again, particularly with those old film cameras that you were talking about there, they were bulky, cumbersome things. They were pro- probably a mechanical shutter. and, and right. big, wow. big spring you had to wind That's up. It. Exactly, yeah. We forget. And nowadays, we've all got our phones and we can just click on, on and shoot anything. But actually... Right. And you've got a monitor so you can see what's being captured. Yes, and of course, as well, the other thing is... And again, I was talking about this with a friend the other day. You had a limited amount of film. You couldn't just keep shooting stuff off because... A, it was expensive, and B, you had to carry it with you. So particularly with those film cameras, moving film, every shot you took used up that film. And if you only had a certain amount, if you ran out, that was it. You couldn't get any more because if you were in the middle of nowhere, you couldn't pop into your local store and buy some more film. It was That was it. And there was no autofocus. No, absolutely. You had to manually focus, and you couldn't see what the film was seeing, so you had to guess at yep. the settings. Yeah, no, it's it is remarkable, and, and I say it does. I find it quite inspirational, actually. Some of those early photographers that you speak to, and you go, actually, that was, yeah, you guys did it. It was impressive. It also feels to the outsider looking in. I've only done a little bit of work in photography and dark rooms and stuff like that, and you have a little bit you can play with to improve images on the back end. But so much of it, you mentioned that your career feels like a chain of serendipitous moments. Honestly, the whole act of being a photographer, at least in those days, feels a professional honing of that serendipity that you like, you just have to be able to go, oh, I see that this is the moment and just snap and you've got it. <laughs> it is, it's a real buzz, to be honest, when you get those moments where everything comes together, you've got that, the right light, the right people, the right car, the right location. You can steer those things to, to try and make them happen, but they've all got to come in sync and then you've got to get in a nice composition and all these things. So when that all does come together, and I think there is an element of luck, to be honest, on, on some of these things. Well, there is luck, but you have to be there to receive the luck and you have to know what you're doing to recognize the luck as it's happening. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things that, uh, as you say, it's one of those things when it all comes together, it's there's, there's nothing better than that sort of moment where you go, yeah, we got that. That's good. That's good. I like that one. If you're interested in Nick Dimbleby's book, Camel Trophy, The Definitive History, you can find it, I at least know, on Amazon. Are there other places that uh, folks can find the book, Nick? I think probably Amazon's probably the best place in the US. I think Rovers North also stock it. They bring in a, a few and you can buy also direct from the publishers, Porter Press. And in fact, they do, there's a couple of special editions. And I think there's actually two or three very special limited editions ones as well. Ooh, which, uh, special editions. Yeah, which come with a, there's, there's like a, a Camel Trophy Pelican case and some of the actual items that were used and worn by Ian Chapman, the event director. They're put together as a special sort of a collector's item. And in fact, I've got a 
I've got a copy here of the what's called the unique edition. I don't have the Pelly case, but the actual book comes in a. Can you see that? Like a. Oh yeah. It says uh, unique on it, right? Exactly. Right that's it. It's the actual book, and it comes with a sort of a camel trophy watch strap sort of style thing here, and then opened up, and you get the book inside with. All the good stuff in there, but it to say comes as part of this Pelly case, which is quite a special thing. Guess what the yeah. uh, cost is of the definitive edition, oh. unique edition? If I, you have to ask, it's, it's, you can't it's, afford it. Six thousand eight hundred sixty-seven dollars American. <laughs> it's not the cheapest. Buy, try so finding five thousand pounds <laughs> exactly. But try finding an original Camel Trophy Pelican case and all the other stuff for for less. Exactly, exactly. Yes, you can go to PorterPressCo.uk. They do have all three editions: classic, unique, and collector's edition. They're all available out there. We'll have a link, of course, right. in the show notes. That's where I got my copy. Right no no autobiography Press. edition. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that we'll work on that one for the next edition. This brings us to the conclusion of part one with Nick Dimbleby. We're having such a nice conversation, Nick. We're going to ask you, and I think you've said yes already, to stay on for the next podcast. We'll have you back. Let's do a little preview for folks where we plan to talk about... I guess my recent career, because obviously Camel Trophy is my... That's 23 years ago, so that's when I first started, really. Which... <laughs> so we'll talk about things you've done this century. I know, that's right, in the last century. <laughs> Thank you, Nick, for joining us this month and talking about last century. <laughs> Thank you very much. I've actually thoroughly enjoyed looking back over the first part of my career. And yeah, let's look at the, the more recent stuff very soon. We hope you enjoyed show number 128. Thanks to Nick Dimbleby for joining us this month and talking about the last century, all his activities in the 20th century. Next time. We expect he'll be back in January, and we'll talk about 21st century Land Rover activities with Nick Dimbleby. And for you computer geeks, this was episode two to the seventh. Thank you, Harold. And also thank you, Dixon. And thank you, Morgan, for always joining us on the program. Always a pleasure. Likewise. And also thanks to the One True Packs for his continued production support. Appreciate it, Packs. It was good to see you at the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix this past year. We post a new podcast at the end of every month. Our website, centersteer.com, has all the shows to listen to and all the show notes with links to stories we discussed in today's podcast. You can directly support the podcast at patreon.com slash centersteer. That's in the British spelling of center, C-E-N-T-R-E. You can buy a t-shirt sticker or buy us a tee. Visit our website for all those details. If you have an idea for a guest, send us those details and contact information if you have it. And for the next week, starting December 2nd, we're having a giveaway. It starts on December 2nd, and it runs through December 9th. Follow both the Center Steer and the Knightsbridge Overland accounts on Instagram for a chance to win a set of Knightsbridge Overland seat covers. Check the Instagram post on Center Steer's Instagram account for all the details. And thanks again to Knightsbridge Overland for doing this giveaway. We really do appreciate it. Thank you for listening, listeners. We'd love to hear from you and what you're up to in your Land Rover. On behalf of the entire crew here at the Center Steer Podcast, I'd like to thank you for listening today. We know you have a choice when it comes to your podcasting content, and we do appreciate your choosing us. Please take a moment to look around you for any personal items you may be leaving behind, especially in the overhead bins. Remember that some items may have shifted during the show. Watch your step as you leave and you may now resume your important things.
the three under one, I think, is a bit of a classic. In the UK, they're pretty scarce, but in the US, they're, they're unicorns, aren't they? 